as we continue in our series um, thinking about what it means to uh, live a, a generous life, a life lived generously. And uh, we started last week just to think a little bit about what that might mean. And uh, we started by saying, really, there's two things that we need to get hold of if we're to understand this theme of generosity in the Bible. The first uh, is the most fundamental and also the simplest to get our heads around, but the hardest to really feel and live out of. And that is that any generosity you and I might feel or act on is only true generosity when it comes out of a full heart, a heart that recognizes that God gives to us before ever we give anything away. That God is the generous one, and we respond to that generosity. But the second um, is really important too. Because when we think of generosity, if you're anything like me, the first thing you think of is money. And uh, we think of uh, being generous as taking out our wallets and handing over cash or signing a direct debit form. But actually in the Bible, um, there are many, many currencies of generosity. We spend our time on or with other people. We spend our reputation to be alongside others. We might spend our status or give up our um, physical space in hospitality. Uh, We have to spend our emotions on others if we're willing to be vulnerable and open and to forgive. All of those are acts of generosity. In other words, being generous is far more than just what we do with our money. But it's not less than what we do with our money. So over this series, we are going to spend at least a couple of our um, talks, our sermons, looking at what Jesus has to say about wealth or money, the stuff that we have, and why, how we're meant to use it, what it's for, and how to live generous lives with it. And um, today is a, 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 one of Jesus' probably least known and certainly least preached on parables. It's probably least preached on, I can say this as a preacher um, who hasn't yet to this point in my years of preaching ever preached on this before. It tends to get avoided because it's quite tricky. Um, and there's plenty of low-hanging fruit to enjoy. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's worth reaching up a bit higher, and uh, this will make us work a little bit harder to get ourselves inside the story. But when we do, it's an incredibly rewarding, very rich story. And it's got a huge amount, I believe, to teach us about our attitude to wealth, to money, to what we have. Page 1050, the parable of the shrewd manager, Luke 16. It's a very surprising story of Jesus. And on the face of it, bits of it simply don't make any sense at all, which generally means it's worth the trouble of chewing over or of digging into. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Well, he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. 
For the people of this world, said Jesus, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and sneered at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. There's hours worth of material here that we could dig into, but but overall I think there are two themes, um, two challenges or, or sets of signposts that Jesus wants to give us here as we think about how we use and our attitude to our money. The first is to um, give us a very clear steer or instruction about what our attitude to money should be and why. And secondly, what the focus of our use of money should be and why. In other words, Jesus doesn't just say, this is what you should do, this is how you should feel. He says, this is why you should do and feel this. Uh, The first thing to notice is, this is one of Jesus' parables um, that you might describe as um, uh, from the less to the more. He picks uh, an illustration that he wants to say, you know, if this, then how much more that? It happens a couple of chapters later in Luke, uh, where Jesus talks about the parable of the persistent widow, who, because she basically bugs the life out of um, uh, a judge or magistrate, gets justice, even though the magistrate isn't terribly interested in giving it. And Jesus says, how much more will God give us justice? The same is true here. What he's saying is, look, even in this case, this is true, how much more should it be for us? Okay, so that's the starting place. Let's start with the easy stuff first. The easiest thing to see here is that if this manager is meant to be some model for us of our attitude to money, then the least we can say about that is that we are to be generous. Look at what he gives away. He gives away huge um, sums of money, effectively. Verse 6 shows that it goes down from um, 800 gallons of olive oil down to 400 gallons. Now, I don't know if you can visualize what 400 gallons of olive oil looks like. To me, that, that's quite a lot. Um, you know, that's sort of eight to ten times the amount of... Um, oh, see, I'm not even going to begin. It's just huge. Okay, it's a large sum. And if you're wondering why on earth people were paying their bills in olive oil or bushels of wheat, it's because what we've got here almost certainly is a situation of tenants on land. And there were several different ways in those days where, that you could sort out a tenancy agreement. But one of the ways, and almost certainly this is what's going on here, was that you would um, work out roughly how much wheat you'd grow on the land you're renting from this um, landowner, or how many olive trees you're going to grow, 
you'd work out what your crop is likely to be, and you agree to pay as your rent a, a certain amount of that. Now, most often, because the landowner wanted a guaranteed return on their income, um, they weren't sort of generous enough to say, well, look, wait and see what your harvest is and then give me a certain percentage of that. What they'd say is, we'll work out what your harvest should be and then we'll work out how much you owe us. And in fact, you owed the money from the moment you planted your crop, not from when the harvest came in. It's quite a tough regime. So if you planted olive trees and one year the olives simply didn't yield as much as you'd expected, you could end up in great debt. If you planted your wheat and one year the wheat crop failed, you could end up in serious debt. Huge sums involved here. And quite possibly, this was before the harvest had come in, but the landowners would be really worried. They'd be watching the crops and they'd be thinking, am I going to be able to pay my rent on this land of the 1,000 bushels or the 800 gallons and still be able to have enough to feed my family. That that was the sort of situation that's going on. So at very least, what this manager is doing is being insanely generous. I mean, he's giving away, in one case, half of the income from this bit of land. In another case, 20% of the income that's coming in. At very least... There is a generosity here that should make us sit up and take notice. If Jesus is going from the less to the more, if he's seen, you know, even in this situation, that how much more for the children of the light, that means you and me, at very least, we're to be generous with our money, generous with our wealth. Now, actually, we could maybe get away with ignoring this if it was just once. But it doesn't really matter where we slice scripture. The call to generous giving of our wealth, and wealth in this case doesn't mean those of you who feel wealthy. I don't think anybody ever feels truly wealthy. There's always the need for a little bit more. But the sense of the stuff we have, to be generous according to our means, is a a call in Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. Literally from Genesis chapter 4, the first sacrifice made to God, an act of generosity of giving away, through to the very end of the Bible as people bring the very best the world has to give in Revelation into the holy city. It doesn't matter where you slice scripture, the call to be generous is there. The problem is that we need a motivation because there's so much that holds us back from really wanting to do it. The biggest one is this feeling of, well... Why should I give away what is mine? If if we're honest, that's the heart of it. Why should I give away what is mine? And if I give it away, and this is the other half of our fear, if I give it away, what will become of me? Why should I? And if I do, what if? And I think into this story, Jesus has poured this incredible wisdom as to why it is that the children of the light, followers of Jesus, can be and should be generous with their um, wealth. And it's all because um, the picture language in the story is that this manager is able to be generous because he's giving away money that isn't his in the first place and actually belongs to somebody he perceives to be a generous master. 
Okay, let's really nail that down. He's giving away money that isn't his in the first place. Well, that's pretty obvious. He's actually called a steward. The Greek word means somebody who looked after a household or some lands or some property or quite often all of it on his master's behalf. This wasn't his money. This wasn't his rent. This wasn't payment to him. He was meant to be receiving on his master's behalf 800 gallons of olive oil for his master because it was his master's land. It's far easier giving away somebody else's money, isn't it? I find. Um, isn't it? I mean, if, you, you know, if it's not yours, well, the, you know, the, the, the tug on your heart is much less. The hooks into it is much less. He's giving away what isn't his to give, which is why he's being slightly dishonest, it has to be said, which is why we struggle with the story a bit. Actually, he's doing what he's not allowed to do. He's doing it with subterfuge, and he gets commended for it. We'll have to come back to that in a moment. But for the moment, we have to at least agree that one of the things Jesus may want us to remember, and what is very clear again from the beginning of Scripture to the end, is that all the stuff we have is not ours in the first place. That we, too, are stewards of the money in our bank, the car we drive, the house we live in, the clothes on our back, all the stuff that we have. Now, listen, if if you're anything like me, uh, even if you're not acknowledging it, there is something somewhere in that goes, no, 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 no. It's not as simple as that. I've worked hard for this. Or... Somebody else in my family has worked hard for this. Or somebody I inherited it from has worked hard for this. This is mine. The problem with that is when you start to think about the stuff that has contributed to that money that was pure gift. To start with, you're alive. I think. It's hard to tell sometimes on Sunday morning, but you're alive. And, And actually being alive is quite an advantage to making money and to having money, and and actually the gift of your life is something you can absolutely guarantee you were not involved in. Your health, to whatever extent you feel healthy, to whatever extent your health enables you to earn, is clearly much of it a gift. The gift of your DNA, the gift of your circumstances, the gift of your environment, alongside all the hard work you might put in at the gym, an awful lot of it is pure gift. We know that because there are no guarantees in this life about when ill health may come, however hard you work. What about the gift of your gifts and your talents? If you are a brilliant entrepreneur, if you are a superb programmer, if you are a wonderful teacher, whatever it is that you do, that's gift. Yeah, you've worked hard with it, but who, where did that come from? And just the circumstances... As one preacher I heard put it like this, he said, imagine that you were born on a mountainside in Tibet in the 13th century. Just trying to pick somewhere and something and at a point in history that is completely alien to us today. Do you honestly believe that you would have the stuff that you have now? That you would be living in the luxury that we live now? That you would have the opportunities that you have now? If you would be born at another time in history, in another part of the world, to a different family, in different circumstances, would you be the person you are now with what you have now? Obviously, the answer is no. See, Jesus isn't being stupid and unreasonable here. What he's saying to us is what we actually know when we think about it is true. That all that we have, whether we feel we've got little or lots, we have to agree is gift. 
We're stewards of somebody else's, God's, good gifts. We're stewards. It's not ours in the first place. Malachi, the prophet, is very hard on this. Malachi 3. Malachi 8. It's embarrassing. Anyway, think Malachi 3. Um, Malachi basically says to the people, now look, you've always had this command to give away a percentage of what you have, the tithe, a 10%. And if you don't, he says, it's not just that you're breaking a rule of God. He says, and this is the phrase he uses, you are robbing God. You are stealing from God. In other words, what he's saying is, look, God has made a deal with you. I'll give you all this stuff. You get to keep 90% of it, of what you get from that investment. You've just got to give 10% of it away. Now, honestly, if somebody said that to me, I'd take it like a shot. Here's money. You invest it. You get to keep 90% of it. Just give me about 10%. That's a pretty good deal. And Malachi says, by not being generous with what God has given us, we are effectively stealing from him. I don't like that language one bit. That doesn't appeal to me at all. This is my stuff. I work hard for it. It's in my bank account. But it's God's. But here's the thing. The other part of the story that would be very easy to miss is that the reason this man can be so confident, even cavalier in his generosity with his master's money, is that the, what he's experienced of his master is that his master is a generous man himself. The reason he knows it is because he's not in jail. Notice what happens in the story. He gets this message and he goes to see his master and he says... Um, You know, I've heard that you're wasting my possessions. Now, honestly and truly, that is a euphemism for you're stealing from me. Okay, I've given you this, I've entrusted you with all my possessions, you are stealing from me. Now, you don't have to know much about the culture 2,000 years ago, or even the culture today, but this was an imprisonable offence. I've got to remember where I was now. Okay, so the setup is this. He has stolen from his master. His master at that point should have thrown him into jail. I mean, you wouldn't have called the police in those days. You'd have simply marched him along to the the magistrate or the local, whoever the local village elder was. And and actually, this was really serious. To give him, A, the opportunity to put put things to right, and B, simply for him to lose his job, was an act of unexpected generosity. In other words, the master in this story is not a a negative figure. What the master does is actually incredibly generous. And here's my hunch of what's going on here. The manager takes a punt. It's quite a risk. But he takes a punt that says, if I am reasonable and generous with the people who owe him, in other words, this man who owes 800 barrels um, or gallons of oil comes along and says, there is no way that the crop this year is going to produce 800. Can we make it 400? And he says, yes, we'll make it 400. That that will put his manager in such good odour in the village that that will make him seem so generous that his master will then be in a bit of a bind. What's he to do? Is he to say, do you know, he had no right doing that. That was my manager's decision, not mine at which point his name will be mud in the village. Or will he simply enjoy the reputation of generosity that it gives him? And that's what he does. He goes to, the master finds out, we don't know how, and the master comes to the manager and he says, well, you're dishonest, but you're clever, I'll give you that. Well done. You can sort of imagine it. Here's this incredibly wealthy man who's actually pretty generous. He sacked this guy 
But at least on this way out the door, he's upped his reputation a bit. And he knows that he's upped his own reputation. It's actually the fact that our God is a generous God that gives us the courage to be generous with his gifts to us. Because you cannot, under any circumstances, at any point, out-give God. You simply can't. You cannot get to a point where God runs out or isn't interested anymore. I'm going to run out of time. I must speed on. So the first half, it's not the first half, it's probably the first three quarters, is, is to simply say our attitude to our wealth, to our money, is to be generous, just like this manager was generous. To be generously generous, to, to push the boat out. And we do it because we know that what we have isn't ours in the first place. We are stewards of it. We gifted it to invest wisely, to use wisely on his behalf, on behalf of a generous master. But the second question we ought to ask, which again I think is answered here very plainly, is, well, if I'm meant to invest this, use it wisely, to be generous wisely, then what am I to be generous towards? And to put it simply, what this manager realises is that the place to put this money that he can distribute, if you like, that he can give away, in effect, is in people and relationships more than it is in status and stuff. Because people and relationships will outlast his job just as people and relationships will outlast our life. Uh, There's an old um, bumper sticker um, that I've actually seen, um, albeit on a photograph, um, clearly exists out there that is generally seen on the back of a very flash sports car uh, that simply says something along these lines, he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. To which the only possible answer has to be, wins what? Wins what? If you die, what do you win at that point? You don't get to use it anymore. Somebody else inherits it, gets to sell it gets to enjoy it, what do you win at that point? Actually, precisely nothing. The old answer to the question, uh, so-and-so has died, oh, what did he leave behind, is everything. The fact is, the stuff in our lives will not outlast our life, will not continue into the life of the world to come. We know that. And actually, that's why you often will hear somebody um, being interviewed about some great disaster in their life, and what they'll say is, well, my house may have burned down, but my family was safe, and that's all that matters. Or we were in a crash, and the car was written off, but my daughter was safe. That's all that matters. Or I've lost my job, and I've lost my home, but my family are together, and that's all that matters. Because we know, even if we don't live like it, that people and relationships are far more important than stuff and status. And that's why Jesus says this very odd thing about use your money to make friends into eternity. In other words, invest what you have in people, in their well-being, in their faith, in your friendship, in your relationships, because it's people and relationships that will outlast your life here and into the life of the world to come.
So if I'm going to be generous with what God's given me, if I'm to be a wise manager, a shrewd manager of that money, then I'm going to be generous not simply towards stuff, but where it is stuff, stuff that blesses and benefits people. I'm going to bless people and relationships because in eternal terms, those are who matter. That's why we invest in Joshua. Great example this morning. We invest in him actually partly because we see what he's then investing in thousands of teenagers and 20s and 30s. Sometimes we invest in stuff, the buildings or the resources that we buy because it blesses people. It draws people into the kingdom. It opens up a big, wide front door that says, this is a community you can belong to. It says to the children, we value you being here. We want you to have fun being here. And we want you to get to know Jesus for yourself. But when we invest generously, we invest in what will last. I wonder if God looks, or when God looks at my bank statement, and my credit card statement, and the way I use my money. I wonder whether he thinks I'm a shrewd manager of what he's given me. I wonder whether he smiles and says, you're generous beyond what's easy. You're generous to the point where there's stuff you can't afford that you could otherwise. And you're shrewd because you're investing it in stuff that will last into eternity, far beyond this life. I'm not sure he would a lot of the time. Generosity has many currencies. It has the currency of time and relationship and status and and physical space. But it does include the currency of money. And so if I'm going to live a life that is generous in response to God's generosity to me and Jesus, then I have to at least look at what I do with the currency of money. And whether that's a tiny amount because that is all I can afford, whether it's a large amount because I know I can afford more, The question is actually my attitude to what God has given me. Do I believe it's all from him? And then do I act shrewdly in investing it in what will last? That's a big questions. Those are painful questions for most of us, awkward ones. But they're questions that Jesus asks us in this parable. And they're questions that we have to address day by day, whether we feel we have lots or very little. As Mark and the band come up to lead us in a final song, I'm going to pray for us as uh, I close. Heavenly Father, the first thing that we want to say to you is thank you. Thank you for what we do have. Thank you that even for those of us who have the least, maybe, in the building today, that we still have more than so many around the world. Thank you for a roof over our heads and for food on the table, for clothes to wear for a a part of this particular city that is relatively safe and secure. Thank you for all your good gifts to us and we acknowledge before you that they are gifts and that we look after them for you. And so we pray that you would help us to be generous and shrewd and that we'll be shrewd enough to invest wisely in what will last in people and in relationships, not simply in stuff, and status. In Jesus' name. Amen.